hey, bitches, we made it. It's the finale of season one. Thank you so much for listening and giving us your support. I've absolutely loved going on this journey with you and hope you got as much from it as we did. If you haven't done so already, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast provider and follow us on our social media feeds so you'll be updated on the other projects we have in the works and the release date for season two. Yes, there will be a season two. And we have even bigger stories coming up then. Lots of you have been asking how you could support the show. And a quick, cheap way to do that is to give us a five-star review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or Google Podcasts, which is soon switching to YouTube. Heck, give us a five-star review on all of them. We can use all the stars we can get. As far as the change from Google to YouTube is concerned, I'm not sure how that's going to work out just yet. That's something that we'll tackle in the next few months. So if you haven't subscribed to our YouTube channel, you'll want to do that too. Believe me, that's a train wreck you won't want to miss. And help us spread the word. Tell your friends about our show and its totally bingeable content. Heck, tell your frenemies too. They won't catch on. If you want to help us even more, be sure to subscribe to our Toil and Trouble Media Patreon page. We have a link at toilandtroublemedia.com you can find it on Patreon itself. In the next several weeks, we'll be adding more content as well as raw footage and behind-the-scenes peaks. Pretty power's a thing, but it only gets us so far. And finally, one more announcement. We're releasing a new podcast soon, Haunted Hustle, where we explore grifters and criminals who use the supernatural against their victims. It's true crime caught dead-handed, and I'm sure you'll love it. So, without further ado, Here's the season one finale. Thanks for listening. The following contains situations and circumstances that are relatable to all women, but are still uncomfortable and sometimes quite awful. We don't pull any punches. Listener discretion is advised. Life's a foolish game. Do you ever feel the same? Well, maybe we could change Turn the ship another way Feel it in the darkness We're sailing right into those jagged cliffs Yeah Some say we've always been insane Hey, life's a foolish game Life's a foolish game Nancy and Tanya, the privileged and the impoverished, the favorite and the overlooked, the victim and the instigator? Maybe. It depends on who you ask and what version of the story they tell. Many of the players we're about to discuss fall into this category. Welcome to Frenemies, a Toil and Trouble Media original. On this show, we discuss notable women and the conflicts that help define them. This week, we continue our story of Nancy Kerrigan and Tanya Harding, with Tanya sporting another medal and Nancy a brace and ice packs. If the conspirators thought the matter would just go away, they were wrong. The attack on Nancy dominated the headlines. The entire country followed the story, and public attention soon turned towards Tanya, the only one to seemingly benefit from the catastrophe. While she held her head up, put on a brave face, and ignored the whispers, the rest of the world wondered what else she was involved in. 
Like most female conflicts, much of the backstory was inflated as time went on and investigators and the public in general scrambled to find an answer. But not Nancy. Sitting at home with her leg elevated, suspecting Tanya was the farthest thing from her mind. There was nothing to suggest bad blood between them at all. Sure, they had a competitive relationship, but it had always been cordial and even friendly. Both wanted to win, but otherwise conducted themselves with the utmost sportsmanship. And some questioned the likelihood of her being involved in such a plan at all. Many insisted she didn't need to, and those that did weren't wrong. Tanya was a great skater and in many ways had proven herself better than Nancy. But Nancy had topped Tanya in ways that mattered too. There was no denying Nancy's grace and polish had contributed to many endorsement deals, whereas Tanya was still having to get by on donations. Even if Tanya was slightly superior, would she have been able to pick up endorsements with Kerrigan around, one reporter asked? Probably not. Investigators and columnists also drew comparisons between the women's backgrounds in search of a motive. It was no secret Tanya grew up poor. Having Nancy out of the picture could really change her fortunes. They also went back to examine past sound bites and interviews. Prior to the attack, Tanya uttered words that now took on a more sinister tone. Quote, It's not going to be a true crown until I get at Nancy down at the Olympics, she said via ABC News. And let me tell you, I'm going to whip her butt. On January 11th, Tanya was interviewed for a Portland news spot. The reporter asked her if someone she knew could have planned the attack. They had no reason to ask that. So far, the police had had no comment on the matter. For all we know, the reporter was just trying to drum up a dramatic quote to make an otherwise aging story interesting. With Galuli looking on off camera, Tanya replied, I've definitely thought about it. She concluded the interview by adding, quote, No one controls my life but me. If there's something in there that I don't like, I'm going to change it. An odd choice of words, to be sure. But then again, she was known as an eloquent skater, not speaker. She may have also been playing other conversations in her mind, having spoken with FBI agents in Detroit during the competition and again when she returned home. Both interviews were brief, and she hoped that that would be the end of it. She had a gold medal to prepare for. In the midst of the fury, Stant kept himself out of sight, eager to avoid attention until the heat died down. Like the rest of his plan, this was a gross miscalculation. The FBI had already coordinated with local law enforcement departments and opened a nationwide manhunt for the assailant that was already being referred to as the whack herd around the world. With Nancy's crying face on the cover of Time and Newsweek and the Olympics just around the corner, the pressure to bring those responsible to justice was immense. If he'd hoped things would blow over, he was wrong. And Eckert? He still had the tape. He may have been a dork, but he was a likable dork with a few friends. One of them was Gene Saunders, a 24-year-old pastor. In his lively tales and fantastic claims, Saunders saw a dejected man with low self-esteem and tried to be a mentor. He barely reacted when Eckert came to him in the days before the attack with the crazy story of arranging a hit. When he played the tape, Saunders hardly understood a word. It's difficult to obtain quality audio from a cassette recorder hidden under a roll of paper towels, you know. 
All that changed when Eckert came to him a few days later, giddily repeating, We did it! We did it! Processing the meaning of his friend's words, he remembered another detail he had previously overlooked. Eckert had shown him something else. A list of other targets. His heart sunk in his chest, and he tried to persuade Eckert to turn himself in. This was a serious crime. A woman had been badly injured. But instead of feeling remorse or at least empathy with the victim, Eckert saw opportunity. After she won the championship, he would meet Tanya at the airport, where he'd be photographed and eventually identified as her bodyguard. In the wake of the attack, other skaters would surely want bodyguards too. His business would explode. Amazingly, this is not the first time Eckerd shared his warped business plan. He'd also promised Smith and Stant lucrative jobs with his agency when the work started pouring in. Misinterpreting his look of disbelief for awe, Eckerd invited Saunders to the airport and the press conference, where he offered to introduce him to his client. But Saunders declined. He'd already made plans with the FBI. On January 10th, a day before Tanya's interview with the Portland News Channel, Saunders met with the FBI and told agents everything. For a guy who claimed to have security details in Spain and Laos, Eckert had been a pretty reliable reporter. His tales of their conversations were eerily similar to information gathered at the scene and, and what some TV stations and police in Detroit had learned from an anonymous letter written by another person familiar with the attack. Eckert's father, who also bragged about it. Stupid didn't fall far from the dumbass tree, did it? When agents asked for a physical description of Eckert, Saunders offered to do them one better. He directed them to turn on their TVs to the news. There, they watched Eckert walking with Tanya. That's him, Saunders said. With a viable lead, the FBI began to build a case and press Saunders to wear a wire. He was hesitant at first. Eckert had done something terrible, to be sure, but he still felt sorry for him. To change his mind, investigators only had to pose one question. If those responsible were willing to go to those lengths to get what they wanted, what lengths would they be willing to go to keep it? He agreed to the wire and arranged to meet up with Eckert at a diner. Saunders and the agents arrived early and got into place. The lead agent pointed out all the undercover operatives in the room before giving parting instructions. Whatever you do, don't get in the car with him, they told him, adding investigators assigned to Eckert had already observed him loading a weapon and putting it in his car. If he opted to leave, they wouldn't be able to protect him. Saunders agreed and tried to play it cool, but wouldn't you know it? When Eckert arrived, the first thing he did was say, let's go for a ride. Saunders refused to go and again pressed his friend to turn himself in. Eckert refused. When the meeting broke up, Saunders said he was shaking so bad he accidentally ran a red light on the way home with the FBI following him. In the end, he saw it as a good sign. At least they weren't traffic police. By the time the FBI caught up with Eckert, he had an entirely different story to tell. He claimed it was Galuli who approached him about an already devised plot to injure Nancy and secure Tanya's place on the team. His involvement was more of a happy coincidence. Just before Christmas, he said he received a call out of the blue from his friend Smith, wanting to know if he was still interested in relocating to Arizona to help him set up an anti-terrorist training camp. Eckert told his friend about the contract to disable a female figure skater and how it involved good money. 
because Tanya's sponsor was George Steinbrenner. Now, it was true that Steinbrenner had recently given Tanya a $10,000 donation, but making the connection between the two was kind of like connecting alligators and applesauce. Nevertheless, Eckert claimed Smith was interested in the deal and agreed to drive to Portland with his nephew, and the rest was history. Smith was picked up the next day. Unlike his moronic friend, he held on to the cover story until he learned Eckert was already talking, at which point he confessed. For the only one of the group with a criminal record, Stant turned himself in on January 14th and confirmed many details investigators already knew. He said he knew he hadn't crippled Nancy because he hadn't heard bone breaking. And that was okay with him. He was interested in bodybuilding, not being a hitman. He later testified that Tanya took part in staging her own death threat and bringing the three into the circle in the first place. The FBI reached out to Vera Morano less than a week later, and she told them about the strange phone call she'd received from Tanya about the so-called bet. Besides the name of the training rink, Vera told investigators Tanya asked her if the Kerrigans owned property in Cape Cod. In later interviews with biographers, Tanya denied ever having this conversation, questioning Vera's memory and claiming she was a bit out there. She also expressed anxiety when interviewers pressed further, saying, I really didn't do anything wrong except ask questions to win a bet. It's just that this sounds bad. I think it was for a quarter or something like that. Big deal. As details slowly leaked and speculation continued to focus on Tanya, television crews rushed to Massachusetts where Nancy was recovering with her family. Waiting for her leg to heal, she devoured the coverage of her attack. Like everyone else, she was eager to see karma play out. Coverage of the story was therapeutic, too. As information emerged, she was able to gain a different impression of her attackers and the assault. As she read about them, she howled with laughter, saying, I, I know this is horrible and I'm lucky and everything, but listen to this, before reading aloud passages of the newest feat of stupidity. Privately, though, she also developed an eating disorder and battled severe anxiety, something she revealed in 2017. She eventually made a full recovery and was offered the second spot on the U.S. Olympic team. The attack stopped nothing. She celebrated by announcing the news at a press conference on January 14th. The next day, Tanya and Galuli spoke with reporters, but declined to comment about the investigation. By now, they had retained different attorneys and were following their individual advice. It really wasn't that strange. They had enough practice doing that throughout their relationship, didn't they? The next day, Tanya's lawyer followed it up with a news conference in which he read a prepared statement denying his client's involvement. When Tanya returned to practice that night, she took time to speak to reporters and perform a triple axel. If she was nervous, they couldn't tell. She focused on her own skating injuries when she was interviewed by the FBI again on January 18th, even asking for some ice for her swollen ankle. They asked her about her finances, and, and she disclosed she owned one account, which was currently $109 overdrawn. Investigators also asked her about her relationship with Galuli, in which she denied he ever threatened her, and she still considered him her husband. Then they asked her if she'd ever been to Eckert's house at any time in December. She replied, definitely not. Investigators advised her that while concealing criminal knowledge didn't violate Oregon law, lying to the FBI violates federal law and carries heavy penalties. She said she understood, but didn't waver. 
Investigators then tipped their hand, revealing that they already knew she had been there and that she was lying. Tanya's lawyer stopped the meeting immediately and asked for a moment to confer with his client. When the meeting resumed, she admitted that she and Galuli went to Eckert's home on the 28th, that Galuli went inside, and she drove away. If she was guilty of anything, she supposed it was trusting her inner circle too much. As more of the conspirators were brought in and more information came to light, public curiosity shifted from what happened to what's going to happen now. Tanya still occupied a place on the team, even though there was every reason to suspect she'd been involved in an attack on another member. In response to questions, the USFSA issued a statement which read in part, We will deal only with the facts. Effectively, taking a wait-and-see stance. Putting it off may have advantaged the association, but not Galuli and Eckert. As soon as they were arrested, each flipped, implicating the other. It was then the investigators' turn to slow things down and let the he said, he said, she said play out. Tanya maintained her innocence when she was called in to speak to the FBI again on January 27th. In 20 days, her story had changed. In addition to admitting she lied about never being at Eckert's house in the month before the attack, she now claimed she learned about her husband's and his friend's involvements after the fact and just didn't choose to come forward. Despite my mistakes and my rough edges, I have done nothing to violate the standards of excellence and sportsmanship that are expected in an Olympic athlete, she said in a prepared statement afterwards. By now, her marriage was over, over, over. During interrogations, the FBI told Galuli Tanya was talking, so he turned on her. When they told her they read her answers to Galuli, she seemed genuinely shocked, blurting out, You read it to him? That's not fair! She tried to put the incident behind her and prepare for the performance of her career, shaking off the accusing looks around her. She told herself it was going to be okay. If the FBI had anything on her, surely they would have brought it out by now. After all, she'd cleaned up any connection she had to the crime. Perhaps she cleaned it up too well. When Kathy Peterson, owner of the Dockside Saloon in Portland, arrived to work on January 30th, she expected a quiet morning of light prep work and cleaning before leaving a little early. It was Super Bowl Sunday, and although she didn't care much for either team, she and her husband made plans, and she didn't want to be late. As she took the trash out, she noticed bags in the dumpster that weren't hers. It happened a lot, and it got on her nerves. She paid good money for that dumpster, and she knew how to deal with people like that. She'd retrieve the bags, open them up, root through the trash until she uncovered the owner, and return it to them. She chuckled to herself as she proceeded to go through the contents of the bag. The trash included letters with Galuli's name and address, a check from the United States Figure Skating Association, and doodles and notes on an envelope. She recognized the names immediately. She got out a phone book, looked up FBI, and left a message. That afternoon, as the Cowboys pounded the bills, she said, guess whose trash I have in my trunk? The crazy story got some laughs. One guest even repeated it to his brother, who worked as a TV reporter. Then reporter knew Kathy and interviewed her the next day, climbing into the dumpster for his report. Kathy went on to joke that the story gave her the most famous dumpster in town. In the next few weeks, she did 63 more interviews. Journalists lined up and asked her for her time, even as she waited on customers. She didn't mind, so long as they bought lunch. I kept holding out for David Letterman, but he never called, she said. 
The doodles and notes were drawn during the planning of the attack, and they were in Tanya's handwriting. They discredited everything she'd been telling authorities, including a note where she'd written down Tony Can Arena in an attempt to write Tony Kent Arena and the arena's phone number. It was indisputable. By early February 1994, Galuli's attorney negotiated a plea deal in exchange for his testimony. The others soon did the same. Virtually everything about the assault was known, not only to law enforcement, but also to reporters and the public who followed the story. Stant, Smith, Galuli, and Eckert had confessed and were in various stages of negotiations with prosecutors, and the USFSA was up to its eyeballs in contention. As the Olympics neared, controversy raged over whether Tanya should be allowed to skate. Technically, she earned a spot on the team when she won the national championship but it was the same championship she won after allegedly committing an egregious act. And, of course, there was Nancy, in a boatload of awkward scenarios. The U.S. Olympic Committee scheduled a hearing to discuss removing Tanya from the team, but she sued to block the proceedings, so they backed down. Both headed to Lillehammer and their future face-off. The media continued the feud in Norway, casting the competition as Harding versus Kerrigan. As always, this wasn't really the case. It was far from a close contest. Tanya lacked Nancy's grace on a good day and in the midst of the scandal had barely trained at all. She'd also put on weight and was visibly out of shape by figure skating standards. In contrast, Nancy had made a miraculous recovery. The only chance Tanya had of winning gold was if she clubbed everyone else before they got on the ice. Before the competition, the women had to share the ice for a Team USA practice session. In front of a crowd of gawking reporters, they ignored each other, staking out space to rehearse their routines. Neither said a word, but Nancy's costume spoke volumes. It was the same Vera Wang she was attacked in. After the awkward demonstration, Nancy told the press, humor is good. It's empowering. Her message was clear. The plot had failed. Anticipation was unlike anything in U.S. Olympic history before or since. The first night of the women's figure skating competition was the third most watched sporting event in U.S. history. Nancy came out strong. Wearing that same Vera Wang, she gave one of the best performances of her career, easily advancing to medal contention. Tanya, on the other hand, skated herself right out of it. When it was her turn, the ice was empty. The audience didn't know what to make of it hanging on to the edge of their seats with anticipation, then sitting back in confusion. After a noticeably long pause, the cheers of the arena were replaced with a quiet rumble. Strange as it was in person, it was even weirder on TV. With two minutes to report to the ice, cameras captured Tanya sitting outside the locker room, trying to fix a broken shoelace. She did her best before running to avoid disqualification. On the ice. She exhaled, skated in a circle, started her routine, and choked on her first jump. Then she stopped, cried, and skated over to the judges. Did she freeze? If she did, would you blame her? Hoisting her foot so judges could see, she pointed at the broken lace and asked for time to fix it. They allowed it and pushed her program back. With most of the contestants out of the running, now including Tanya, the real showdown turned to Nancy and Oksana Bayul. 
Coverage shifted from the previous villain victim story to a tale of two survivors. Nancy with her story of overcoming physical attack and Oksana's tragic life as an orphan. Nancy skated first and flawlessly. Many said her long and short routines were good enough to win the gold medal in almost any other year. But Oksana performed incredibly, too. The judges had their work cut out for them. Split down the middle, with four judges favoring each, the ninth gave it to Oksana, by the closest margin possible. Just a tenth of a point. On February 5th, the USFSA decided there were reasonable grounds to believe that Tanya had violated their code of ethics. You think? They decided the best course of action was to hold a disciplinary hearing. Without the pressure of a gold medal, they examined the evidence and gave Tanya 30 days to respond. She chose neither to attend nor participate, so she was stripped of her 1994 U.S. championship and banned from participating in USFSA events for life. The group has no control over professional skating events, but Tanya found no offers there either. No one was willing to work with her. On March 16th, she agreed to plead guilty to a Class C felony. In exchange, she received three years probation, community service, and a fine. Nancy left before the closing ceremonies so she could ride in a parade at Disney World, where she was caught on mic saying, This is dumb. I hate it. This is the corniest thing I've ever done. She claimed she was talking about wearing her silver medal during the parade, not the event itself. But she still ended up looking like a jackass. Brushing the controversy aside, she retired from competition. She was later inducted into the Figure Skating Hall of Fame and served as a special correspondent during several Olympics. Now a married mom of three, she heads up the Nancy Kerrigan Foundation, which raises money for the visually impaired. And she's executive producing a documentary, which explores eating disorders in sports. After publicly apologizing to Nancy, where he acknowledged any apology coming from him rang hollow, Galuli was sentenced to two years in prison. Eager to put the chapter behind him, he changed his name to Jeff Stone. Several Jeff Stones objected on the grounds that his inclusion in the club would sully their good name. He remarried and now lives around Portland. Eckert pleaded guilty to racketeering. After getting out of prison, he changed his name to Brian Griffith. He died in 2007 of natural causes. Smith and Stant pleaded guilty to conspiracy to commit second-degree assault. Without the need to change his name, Smith served his time and moved to Montana. In prison, Stant took a long look at himself, the idiot who hit Nancy and didn't like what he saw. Since then, he said he's devoted his life to transforming into a new person. But he hasn't apologized to her. People say they're sorry all the time, Stant says. To me, what really says you're sorry is a change of life. The best way for me to say I'm sorry is that I'm not the same person. Yeah, I'm still thinking, I'm sorry, Nancy, is another way. Following the scandal, Tanya tried acting for a bit, but it never caught on. In 2002, she fought Paula Jones on Celebrity Boxing and won, embarking on a brief career. She had four wins and three losses before she called it quits. She made news for crashing her car, throwing a hubcap at her boyfriend, and serving 10 days in jail on a probation violation, and attempted suicide twice. 
She made additional headlines when an explicit tape of her and Galuli surfaced, and again when it was disclosed that the couple sold the tape to Penthouse for $200,000 in royalties. She tried to make a comeback as a singer, but she and her band, the Golden Blades, were booed off the stage after only one appearance. In 2009, she appeared on Oprah Winfrey, where she discussed her difficult upbringing and the scandal that captured America. She told Oprah she'd apologized enough for her wrongdoings, but that if Nancy were here, she would give her a hug and say how proud she was of her for continuing with her life, as she tried to do as well. Though Tanya claims she had apologized many times for what happened, Nancy maintained she's never received a direct apology, adding, does it matter at this point? In 2017, she got another shot at fame when Margot Robbie starred in her biopic, I, Tanya. She was even invited to the Golden Globes, where actress Allison Janney gave her a shout-out from the podium. When the Boston Globe reached out to Nancy for comment, she did her best to be diplomatic. I haven't seen the movie. I'm just busy living my life, she said. I was the victim. Like, that's my role in this whole thing. That's it. It's weird, for sure. A bizarre thing. Capitalizing on the promotional opportunity, Tanya brokered an interview with ABC News for a two-hour special. Swept up in the excitement of the film and perhaps the validation of someone listening to her side, she made a seemingly innocent comment that, according to followers, was a damning admission. In spite of maintaining for more than two decades that she knew nothing of the plot until after the attack, with the heat off and the cameras on, Tanya said something different. Quote, I did, however, overhear them talking about stuff where, well, maybe we should take somebody out so we can make sure she gets on the team, Tanya said. And I remember telling them, I go, what the hell are you talking about? I can skate. You can imagine what producers did. They nodded and maintained the best poker face ever. They finished the interview, thanked her for her time and rushed back to the studio to break the story. After it aired, she knew she was screwed. She tried to walk back the damage, demanding journalists sign an affidavit agreeing to pay her a $25,000 fine if they asked her anything about the past. That went over like a baton to the leg. The New York Post reported her publicist and agent dropped her, too. And like a figure skater with hairy legs, her triumphant return was over. She has since remarried and has a young son. She makes regular appearances on the show World's Dumbest Criminals. So while they're unlikely to go out for a girls' night anytime soon, Nancy and Tanya moved on. It's sad, the bizarre craziness that all transpired, Nancy told the New York Post. And she's right. This has been Frenemies. Thanks for listening. is an original production of Toil and Trouble Media. Executive produced by Jennifer Beck. This episode was also written and performed by Jennifer Beck. I'm kind of a big deal. Additional production assistance was provided by Aaron Iris and David Beck. And our music was performed by Snowflake and Admiral Bob. Thanks, guys. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star review wherever you listen and tell your friends. It helps us rise above the crowd. And check out our website at toilandtroublemedia.com. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and threads. 
We're also on Patreon, and we have a YouTube channel if you want even more Toil and Trouble media in your life. I lost control of those outlets a long time ago, so you never know what you're going to find. They're kind of like herding cats. And as always, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.